and welcome to the Media Law Podcast with me, Colette Allen. In this run-up to the UK election, we have been spoiled for choice in the issues to sink our teeth into. For all things political, I will be joined by Tom, and we will be discussing Ofcom's rejection of the Tories' complaints about the use of an ice sculpture to replace the Prime Minister in the Channel 4 climate change debate, the Chief Rabbi's article encouraging Jewish voters not to vote for Jeremy Corbyn in The Times, the mother of Jack Wilman Barr and her complaint that her son is being used as a political football. Then, as a reminder to us all that there is a world outside the election, I will be joined by Mark Stevens, one of the UK's leading media lawyers and key player in Vernon Unsworth's defamation case against Elon Musk to discuss the decision. To begin with, I'd like to talk about Facebook's removal of the conservative advert featuring distorted BBC footage of some of its top journalists reporting on Brexit including political editor Laura Koonsberg. Facebook said seven paid-for adverts were taken down because it breached intellectual property policies. The adverts featured video and audio clips of Koonsberg and the BBC News at 10 anchor Hugh Edwards reporting on reaction to government defeats in Parliament that delayed Brexit under Boris Johnson's prime ministership. In the 15-second advert, clips of Koonsberg were saying, quote, pointless delays to Brexit and, quote, there had been real drama in the House of Commons tonight, and also Edwards reporting, quote, another Brexit delay, while political correspondent Jonathan Blake described, quote, a result which means Parliament now holds the Prime Minister prisoner. It ended with the strapline, stop the chaos in Parliament, get Brexit done. BBC complained to the Tory party chairman last week, saying the ad was completely unacceptable and distorts the BBC's output, which could damage perceptions of impartiality. But the Conservatives refused to take the advert down, saying that the video uses contemporary news footage to remind voters of the deadlock and delay of the last three years caused by a broken parliament that did everything it could to block Brexit. The adverts can no longer be viewable on Facebook's ad library. In a statement from the social media platform, They said, whenever we receive valid IP claims against the content on the platform in advertising or elsewhere, we act in accordance with our policies and take action as required. The BBC, Kunzberg and Edwards have welcomed this decision from Facebook. Google has also removed eight adverts paid for by the Conservative Party between the 18th of November and the 2nd of December because they violated its ad policies. However, the tech giant has refused to give any further details, saying it does not disclose the nature of these policy violations. Tom, I wonder, had Facebook not taken the steps to remove the advert itself, what steps could the BBC have taken against the Tory party to ensure that its impartial reputation was not damaged by these 15-second clips? Well, I, I think that you've, you've really hit upon the issue there, which is that we lack an international consensus for internet standards. Um, When it comes to political advertising, we've seen right from the start of this campaign a wide divergence between um, the major social media hosts. Um, Twitter took the view that all political advertising should be banned. Facebook did not, but then it's been ad hoc removing certain political adverts such as these ones, for wholly obscure reasons that it doesn't publish. Um, now, these all these these different approaches to dealing with 
political speech on the internet reflect different conceptions of what free speech is and why it is important. And the big problem when you're dealing across national boundaries is that different countries have different conceptions of what free speech is and why it is important. Traditionally, there's a much more laissez-faire attitude, say, in the United States, where most of these companies are based, than there is in Europe. Um, So you've absolutely hit upon the problem. The solution, some sort of internationally agreed uh, settlement of internet rights and how speech claims are to be treated over the internet versus claims to restrict the speech. Uh, I'd be very surprised if we ever get there. Certainly we're not going to get there in the near future, but that is the only thing that's really going to resolve this issue. Right. Right. Um, Okay. So I think we should move on to get through uh, to the Ofcom decision with Channel 4. Yes. Um, so this is Ofcom's rejection of the complaint lodged by the Conservative Party about Channel 4's election climate debate in which Boris Johnson was replaced by a melting ice sculpture after refusing to turn up and instead sending his dad and Michael Gove, which I thought was quite funny why his dad was there. Um, the board, broadcasting watchdog said... Channel 4 took appropriate steps to ensure the programme was balanced and that the Conservative Party's viewpoint was adequately reflected, despite the Prime Minister's refusal to take part in the debate. In a statement, Ofcom said that broadcasters have editorial freedom in determining the formats of any election debate, and the election committee concluded that across the one-hour debate and the subsequent news programme, Channel 4's use of the editorial techniques ensured the Conservatives' viewpoints on climate change and the environmental issues were adequately reflected and given due weight. They took into account the fact that the ice sculpture was not a representation of the Prime Minister personally, and that little editorial focus was given to it, either visually or in references made by the presenter or the other debate participants. Um, What I thought was interesting in all this was that the Tories accused the broadcaster of conspiring with Jeremy Corbyn and brief journalists that they would review its broadcasting license if they won the election, apparently in some sort of revenge move. And I wondered, can the Tories actually punish Channel 4 for its impudence here when the time comes, if they are to uh, gain a majority in the next election? Yes. Uh, Any government that has majority support in Parliament can use legislation to do anything it likes. So if it wants to abolish the existence of Channel 4, then it can do so. Statutorily, we'll have the power to do that. Um, I, I think it's highly unlikely that they would, but what they've threatened, and that's where this did get very sinister, um, is a, a review of Channel 4's public service remit. Um, and this is part of a wider issue that we've seen to do with journalistic access in this election. It's perfectly apparent that corporations and or journalists that go further than the government would like in terms of pursuing lines of questioning, styles of questioning, types of interrogation, um, are denied access Um, It's no coincidence, for example, that um, the Prime Minister has not given 
an interview to Channel 4. Right. Um, conservatives giving interviews to Channel 4 News are few and far between these days and have been for a while because the Conservative Party is in a kind of spat with Channel 4 News, um, believing them not to be sufficiently impartial. Um, <clears throat> and this is, of course, a big problem for democratic accountability. Um when journalists are put in a position where it is made clear to them that a failure to tow a particular line will result in access being withdrawn around election time, um, undoubtedly that is deeply concerning. Um, I'm not at all sure that there's a legal solution um, and if they were, it would have to be brought in by legislation. Then you've got all the problems of what happens. You've got a majority government that doesn't want to do it. But that is a, it, it is certainly concerning from a, a free speech perspective. Do you think, though, that if the government actually did choose to legislate against Channel 4 because of something like this, the, the backlash would be so strong and the media does have such sway over public opinion that really there's a natural check and balance there even though politically and legally they could enforce such legislation they just wouldn't because it it would be so unpopular one would like to think that in such an, a situation other broadcasters would close ranks and support the one that was under attack and if you had a situation where ITV and the BBC and Sky all came out against um, restrictions on Channel 4 or changes to their remit, um, then that might create the kind of backlash that you're talking about. But we also have to remember that these other organisations see themselves as operating in a marketplace Channel 4 is a competitor in that marketplace. And I'm not going to put a huge amount of faith in these corporations um, in terms of the likelihood of them supporting a competitor, I'm afraid. I, I hope that would happen. Um, but I'm not going to believe in it until it does. Yeah, but I, I feel like maybe they're... they're... There'd be some sort of camaraderie that, you know, you're fighting the government on this one. And so they would join together, hopefully. I mean, I don't know. It's all hypothetical here. I would have liked to have seen that happen with the access problem. Right. I would have liked to have seen all of the broadcasters say, no, you know what? We are all of us going to ask the awkward questions. I mean, we're going to talk about... Um, the uh, issue of the uh, the young boy who was photographed on the yeah. floor in a Leeds hospital. But it was the ITV journalist who asked that question uh, of Johnson, pursued that line of questioning of Boris Johnson. Um, and Johnson tried very hard not to answer about the boy. And there's no doubt in my mind that journalist is not going to get the opportunity to ask anything else of Boris Johnson again for a very long time. But ITV clearly decided that this was the point in the campaign to go for broke, realise that the access was going to be lost, um, but asked the question anyway because it was on a matter of public interest. I'd have liked to have seen 
other broadcasters doing that too throughout the campaign instead of trying to be the one that toes the line and gets the most access if they just all got together and said you know what we're all going to ask the awkward questions not just of the conservative party by the way but of all political parties they had all taken that view then um I, I, i think there's a chance that the access problems could have been avoided because at the end of the day, all political parties um, want exposure right. for the things they see as, as, as the good points in their campaign. Um, but at the moment, um, there are some that want to have their cake and eat it. And I, I, I think the only solution to that is the kind of camaraderie you're talking about. But as I say, the evidence is it's not happening. Um, as you brought up, though, Jack Robert Barr's picture, um, I think it'd be good to to move on to that and actually discuss the mother's response to the way that her son's been uh kind of passed around in the national press and um, among political campaigners here um and i wonder obviously the mother was the one who gave the national press the photo of her son in the first place um and she i believe it was the yorkshire evening post that first um published the article with the the image. Uh, I wonder if she's actually waived her right to privacy by giving the picture away in the first place. So she can't really complain about her son being used as a political football now. Surely the genie's somewhat out the bottle. Well, the well the issue is um, her son's right to privacy rather than her own. But you're right that the issue is whether by her actions she has effectively waived that right. So um, we'll start at the very beginning, which is that her son is in hospital for medical treatment. He's receiving medical treatment. So prima facie, this is a private state of affairs, a private situation. Ordinarily, a picture taken of a person in a medical setting is going to attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, But the mother has chosen to make a political point with it. Um, there's no doubt if you read the uh, article in the mirror, there are a number of pictures that have clearly been made available to the press by the family. And there's quite detailed information given by the mother who's quoted talking about the son's condition, the symptoms he's been suffering, exactly what happened to him that night. So there's been an awful lot of information given out. And yes, it is sufficiently detailed that it's very hard to see how the son can maintain an effective right to control the further dissemination of that information on grounds of privacy in the light of the the detail that's been given out. Um, This is one of those situations where the parent has, uh, we could say, waived the child's right to privacy, or we could could use more emotive language that is effectively destroyed the child's right to privacy in respect of this particular issue um, through the parent's own decision-making. That might be a good thing, might be a bad thing, but that's what's happened. And do parents under current privacy law have that right? If your child is still under 18, do you effectively control their privacy? To an extent, yes. So the leading case on this is the case of triple A, which uh, anyone familiar with the case will realise that that's quite ironic in this election campaign. Um, But the case of AAA involved a a, a child whose um, right to privacy 
um, was effectively waived by a parent who talked about the child to a journalist um, at a, a country retreat one weekend. Um, and the court said that, you know, parents cannot absolutely remove a child's right to privacy because a person's human right cannot be entirely waived. But what happens is that the child's, the reasonableness of the child's expectation is reduced. So the privacy interest is then accorded a lesser weight. And once it's accorded a lesser weight, it takes far less public interest to override it. And here there is clear public interest, uh, politically speaking, in what was happening. Um, the one thing that I did find remarkable about the publication was that the child's face was not pixelated, which these days is pretty standard practice, pixelating the faces of children where they are focused on in uh, uh, some sort of newspaper expose. Um, that didn't happen here. And there are, you know, there are, there are quite detailed pictures of the condition that the child is in, um, obviously receiving some, um, some, some medical treatment. There are, you know, wires and bags of fluid and stuff knocking around. So uh, I did find that remarkable. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is an interesting thing to have developed in the last week of this election, definitely. Also, I think what's interesting is the fake news element to this. Um, and the fact that there was all these uh, posts on social media that actually the photo was staged and then they turned out to be false. And this, but the traction that it got and this idea that once you've planted a seed that a photo is fake, it doesn't matter how many articles are then proving its accuracy afterwards. People are already, they've moved on and they seem to have kind of made up a, a, a decision that, well, it could be true, it could not be true. And, and I wonder if there's any legal solution to fake news posting and this idea that social media kind of gains its own momentum and you kind of can't control it. Well, I see just this morning, and we're recording this um, the day before polling day, uh, just this morning, the uh, leader of Plaid Cymru, the Welsh, um, Welsh party, uh, Adam Price, has come out and proposed in the next parliament legislation designed to prohibit parliamentary candidates from deliberately spreading misinformation. It's not the first time he's proposed such legislation. Um, he did so after the Iraq war um, 10 years ago. Um, but that's the sort of measure that would be needed to combat fake news, and deliberate disinformation. Um, it would be incredibly controversial because how do you determine what is true and what is not if the speech is itself limited? Um, and then, you know, people will jump up and down and very quickly start reminding us of the Orwellian Ministry of Truth in 1984. Right. And with very good reason. So that's the sort of measure that you'd be talking about to combat this on a wide scale. Um, but I don't see it happening anytime ever soon. seeing the light of day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So finally, um, on, on this election run, just to talk about the chief rabbi's article in the times, um, and it's encouraging Jewish voters not to put their trust in Jeremy Corbyn. Um, this was an unprecedented intervention in an election campaign from a religious leader. And it sparked comments from various, uh, 
religious leaders across various faiths and denominations, uh, attacking both the Conservative and the Labour Party. It got me thinking, is there a legal issue here? Could Jeremy Corbyn actually bring a defamation claim against the chief rabbi, even if it might not be worth pursuing? Uh, No, in essence, because um, Corbyn is a political leader seeking the highest elected office in the country. Um, And we know from jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, um, particularly the case of Lingens and Austria, um, that political figures must expect and be uh, able to tolerate a much higher, more stringent degree of criticism than lay people um, from the media, uh, even if that means a certain amount of false information. Um, and obviously, Corbyn would be alleging in such a claim that what 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 has been said is essentially false. Um, <clears throat> so, no, there would be, in essence, a clear Article 10 freedom of expression uh, concern here that would give rise to a uh, defence of, um, uh, under Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013. Um, so uh, there is uh, no way that this would work. It, it would simply not be regarded as defamatory, frankly, to say this of a politician. It's part of the rough and tumble of electioneering um, when it's directed at an individual um, who, who is seeking the highest elected office. You would have to say something extraordinarily um, personal about Jeremy Corbyn. And if somebody said he was actually a terrorist, um, then that would be um, something that he could potentially bring a claim for. The jury's out on whether saying he is actually anti-Semitic would give rise to a claim. It would, in theory, give rise to a claim, but he would not want to go through with the the trial and the uh, the evidence that would be brought up by uh, defendants, even if it were ultimately to uh, come out in his favour. So the short answer, which I failed to give you in a remotely short fashion, is no. Great. Well, I think we should probably leave the election there and we'll see what happens tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Turning away from the UK now and toward the US, last week saw eight American jurors find in favour of Elon Musk in a defamation case brought by the British cave diver Vernon Unsworth over a tweet that referred to Mr Unsworth as pedo guy. A juror told BuzzFeed their decision came down to whether a reasonable person could read pedo guy to be a reference to Mr Unsworth. Their finding that it didn't prompted Mark Stevens, partner at Howard Kennedy and one of Mr. Unsworth's lawyers, to say that the jury had erred in law by assuming the tweet would have to identify Unsworth by name in order to be defamatory. While Unsworth was not identified in the tweet directly, he was clearly identifiable. Indeed, the only way he got to learn about the tweet was when other people drew it to his attention. I'm joined by Mark now. And Mark, I wonder if you can elaborate on this jury interview as well as the idea that a judge sitting alone, as custom in England and Wales on defamation cases, would not have made this mistake? Um, The the reason is that, of course, it comes as something of a surprise to those of us steeped in English law to understand that in America that not only can you interview jurors, as jury consultants do all the time uh, in most states, but particularly California, where this trial was, 
and that jurors themselves can give interviews. They can, as in the O.J. Simpson case, write books if they wish to. And what we had in this case was the juror revealing that he had, or that the jury had come to conclusions. Was it defamatory was the first question. Tick, yes. Was it published to a third party? Tick, yes. Did it refer to Vernon Unsworth? No. End of case. Now, that is really interesting because, of course, the whole case, we knew that it didn't refer to Vernon Unsworth in the actual tweet. But, of course, the law isn't did it refer to. Uh, the question is, is it of and concerning in, in American law? That is, was he identifiable to readers or uh, of the tweet or otherwise as the person being referred to by Musk? And in this particular case, as, as you said, rightly said in your introduction, Vernon only came to learn about Musk's tweet um, through third parties telling him about it because Vernon isn't on Twitter. So we had this situation where the law is, and the question is, um, was Vernon Unsworth identifiable from Musk's tweet? And the answer appears to be that this jury thought that his name actually had to be in the tweet in order to be referenced uh, in the way that the law required. So unfortunately, although they, um, undoubtedly they did the best they could, this is one of those situations where the jury misapplied the law to the factual matrix of the case. I just want to return, though, to this idea that a judge sitting alone here wouldn't have made this mistake. And potentially Unsworth would have won here, which is something you've said in, in other interviews. I wonder, you know, whether he he actually would have done. Because we look at Nicola Stoker's case in the summer, which saw all five judges on the Supreme Court agree that the phrase, my husband tried to strangle me, uh, couldn't be read in the same way as the technical de de dictionary definition of the word because words read on social media read hastily and take on different meanings and you know this reading in line with Elon Musk's own testimony at trial that pedo guy was a common phrase used in his home country South Africa when he grew up to mean scary old man I wonder whether a judge sitting here would also agree that pedo guy wasn't actually a defamatory slur by Musk here, but something that was is said colloquially, and his followers on Twitter would have known that. Well, there's two elements there, and let's pick up the judge alone. First of all, the judge alone here, specialist libel judges in London, sitting without a jury, uh, would undoubtedly not have made that mistake. Indeed, the judge in uh, uh, California didn't make the mistake. At a pre-trial ruling, he had said that it was obvious that the tweet related to and was often concerning Vernon Unsworth. Otherwise, the case couldn't have proceeded to trial. So I think the judges all around the world would be at one about that. The second question is whether this was accusation or insult. Now, an insult is something which is spontaneous. It's an immediate response. You know, we've all been cut up in a car and we might have uttered a profanity or we've done, we've uttered an insult as an immediate and almost spontaneous response to things. In this particular case, the evidence in court was that Elon Musk spent about an hour to an hour and a half uh, researching Vernon Unsworth and uh, the area near the cave where he was working 
and then wrote the tweet. And so uh, what he says is that Unsworth is a suspicious guy, an old expat living in Thailand, and then calls him a pedo guy. So there's a lot more to this and the background where, you know, it's obviously not spontaneous. It's obviously calculated and cynical. It's not the same as a sort of stalker set, a case where, you know, you might say slightly colloquially, perhaps, that you were going to strangle somebody. Um, so I do think it is very different. And if, then, of course, we go on and there were further tweets which clarify this. So the next day, someone pushes back on Twitter and says, actually, Vernon Unsworth is a hero. Um, you know, why are you calling him pedo guy? And um, he sa says, I bet you've signed dollar it's true. So he's actually saying, you know, at that point, it really is true. It's not an insult. And then there were a number of other allegations, and particularly he sought to have um, discreditable stories of a similar nature uh, published in the British press, really to um, uh, traduce uh, Vernon Unsworth's background and behaviour. Uh, so th there are, I think, uh, vast differences in the, in the behaviour of what has turned out to be a bullying billionaire against this sort of, in this David and Goliath battle. But I do think, you know, we are going to see a situation where let leave and license is given for a wider scope of insults on social media. What I think is that it will not be uh, a twibble, that is a Twitter libel free zone. I do think people will be able to make um, libel suits against people. Otherwise, I think we've, you know, we've effectively sold the pass. It's clearly inappropriate to make allegations of rape, murder, um, you know, paedophilia against people on, on the internet. It doesn't make it any easier uh, than publishing in a national newspaper. And in the case of Elon Musk, who has now 29 million followers, which is a greater reach than every national newspaper in the UK and probably most broadcasters added together, that is going to have an impact on somebody's life. Why did you hold the trial in the US? Is it anything to do with the fact that the US won't enforce British libel standards on its own citizens? We, we issued proceedings here against um, Elon Musk. Uh, we invited uh, his lawyers to accept service in the jurisdiction. They declined. Uh, he refused to come to the UK to fight the case. So we were forced to fly 5,000 miles to America in order to issue proceedings there. And in some ways, people might think it was foolhardy of him to do that, because, of course, in the UK, we've got a cap on damages of £250,000, whereas in America, you know, damages are kind of starting at about $5 million. So I think there is a, a difference in this case. And, you know, in the particular case at hand, we asked for $5 million uh, in compensation. Obviously, it's up to the jury of eight men and women to determine whether it should go higher or lower than that. That's our absolute discretion. But that was what the precedent said should be issued. And then there's another 45 million, which was in relation to um, compensation for the injuries that will happen in the future. And then there's a question that if you think that the person has behaved with malice, then in those circumstances, 
uh, the jury is in, uh, entitled to issue an award calculated to discourage, not to prevent, but to discourage the repetition, repetition of that kind of behaviour. And in this particular case, it was decided that um, it might be appropriate to have uh, an award of uh, 140,000 uh, or 150,000, uh, $15 million. But of course, Mr. Musk is a multi-billionaire worth 28 billion. And the question that you know you have to pose is, in order to be proportionate to the individual, what would be the appropriate um, award to, to make? Now, in that particular instance, we rely very heavily on our uh, US counsel as to what was normal and usual in the courts of America. Vernon didn't know what was going to be asked for before he went in, um, and neither did I. It was really very much left up to the US lawyers. But it's, you know, it's one of those things. It is a very stark difference. And, you know, effectively, you might think he could have bought this whole case off if he had, one, apologised, but two, perhaps more importantly, turned around and said, actually, I never meant this as a statement of an accusation or the truth. I never thought that Vernon Unsworth was a paedophile. His lawyer said it for the very first time in court last Friday. So we've been, or Vernon has been living with this for you know, the thick end of a year where he's been wanting Elon Musk to withdraw the allegation and he finally did it at the end of the court case. So we have this David and Goliath battle. Finally, he gets the vindication that he seeks. He might have actually lost on the compensation side, but Musk goaded him to sue. He said, don't you think it's, it's strange he hadn't sued me? Effectively, he was saying, sue or true, this is, you know, if if Vernon didn't sue him, he had he people could take it that the allegation he'd made was true, and I think he had expected Vernon to be without sufficient resources or means to be able to fly the witnesses, hire the lawyers, um, all the way the five thousand miles to Los Angeles. Luckily, we found a lawyer who was prepared to do that in. Lynn Wood from Atlanta, who was prepared to back Vernon as I was, uh, and to get that exculpation, that vindication that Vernon so badly needed and deserved. He is a hero. He's not someone who shies away from a fight, and he certainly didn't shy away from a fight with Elon Musk. Sounds like this whole thing could have been avoided with just a simple apology then. I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, I think Musk was forced uh, to apologise formally in court. He was, uh, I, I mean, I think the apologies we got from him were very forced, but he was also forced to admit that the allegation that he'd made was false. And I think that, for us, was the most important element of this particular case, because Vernon should never have had to suffer the indignities of this particular case at all. Well, that seems as good a place as any to leave it. Thank you so much again for joining me, Mark. Thank you. That's Mark Stevens from Howard Kennedy. Thank you for listening to Media Law Podcast. As ever, follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast and get in touch with any questions you'd like me to cover on Newscast. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.